I'm Andrew Schwartz, and you're listening to The Truth of the Matter, a podcast by CSIS where we break down the top policy issues of the day and talk with the people that can help us best understand what's really going on. To kick off 2022, we have a very special guest. We have the Honorable David Miliband, who is the president and CEO of the International Rescue Committee, former member of parliament in the UK. He was the 74th Secretary of State for Foreign Affairs of the United Kingdom. David, welcome to the podcast. Thank you, Andrew. Very good to be with you. Happy New Year. Happy New Year to you, too. So, David, you come to the IRC, the International Rescue Committee, as somebody who brings a personal commitment to the work. Can you tell us a little bit about that? I mean, your parents were refugees, after all, to Great Britain. So tell me about your commitment and how how it came about. Yes, when I started at the IRC, or maybe more accurately, when I applied for the job at the IRC, I said there were three reasons why I was keen to take up the position. And the three reasons weren't first to escape British politics, second to escape British politics, and third to escape British politics. (laughs) Uh, The the three reasons uh, were, first, that I thought some of the issues at the boundary of foreign policy and humanitarian affairs were some of the most difficult questions in global public policy. How do you get medical aid into Syria? How do you tackle sexual violence in the Democratic Republic of Congo? How do you educate girls in Taliban-controlled Afghanistan. That was an issue even in 2013-14, when obviously the Taliban were not in control of the whole country. So that was the first reason. The second reason was that I felt that the IRC, the International Rescue Committee, was a a bit of a a sleeping giant in that it was founded by Albert Einstein in the 1930s. You can't really have better shoulders to stand on than that. It was founded to speak up and to act to save people being persecuted, Jews, but also intellectuals being persecuted in Nazi-occupied Europe. And I felt that the organization had a mandate that was important for the times. We're not a general anti-poverty agency. We're an agency that helps people who, as we have rewritten our mission statement, helps people whose lives are shattered by conflict, persecution, and disaster, including the climate crisis. But thirdly, as you said, both of my parents were refugees. I literally wouldn't be here if the UK had not admitted refugees in the 19. 50s, 40s, 50s, not enough in some ways. Um, But my parents were allowed in in the 1950s. My dad had actually come in the 40s and served in the British Navy during the Second World War. And so I suppose in a small way, I was closing a circle by coming to work for an organization that would help people who were likely a different religion, different region of the world than my family, but who were suffering some of the same oppressions. It's a fascinating story. And, you know, everybody's work is better when they bring that personal commitment. So it's really interesting to talk to you about this, David, because I know how passionate you are about it. One of the things you do as the head of the IRC is you oversee the agency's humanitarian relief operations in more than 40 war-affected countries and its refugee resettlement and assistance program in over 20 U.S. cities. That's, it's, it's a pretty amazing toll of what you have to deal with, isn't it? Fortunately, I've got very good people who are doing it. We're a, we're a large and growing organization for some good reasons, which is that more and more people, more and more governments are committed to the idea that our work is leading and is value for money and is effective. That's the good reason. The bad reason is there's more and more need. And we are now a billion-dollar 
a year NGO. Uh, we have 17,000 staff and 20,000 volunteers in 200 field sites around the world. And as you say, we're, we're in more than 20 US cities, large and small. We're in Los Angeles, we're in New York, but we're in Boise, Idaho. We're opening in Spokane, Washington. So we're, we're an organization that's got its feet on the ground across what we call the arc of crisis, from the war zone in Syria or in Afghanistan or in Somalia, to the internal displacement camp in Ethiopia or in Syria, to the refugee routes in Greece or uh, in uh, Ethiopia, uh, and then to refugee resettlement in the US, also increasingly in Germany, interestingly enough, which is a, doing a good job resettling refugees. The US refugee resettlement program was bipartisan when I arrived. It's not bipartisan anymore, but the current administration is building up US refugee resettlement so that there'll be the target is 125,000 refugees admitted to the US this year on the refugee resettlement route, plus about 70,000 Afghans who were taken from the country, who were allowed out of the country and brought to the US in the wake of the military withdrawal in August. So with all of this going on every year, you release the annual emergency watch list and you rank the countries that are most at risk. And let me just go through the, the top 10. Number one is Afghanistan, number two, Ethiopia, followed by Yemen, Nigeria, South Sudan, the Democratic Republic of the Congo, Myanmar, Somalia, Syria, and Sudan. That's quite a list. Yeah, and some of those countries have been there for many years. The total population of the 20 countries on the watch list is about 800 million people, so 10% of the world's population. But the total number in humanitarian need, that means depending on humanitarian assistance to survive, is 245 million. That's one in three of the people in those countries, nearly one in three of the people in those countries. And we've done something different with this year's uh, watch list. We, we always issue a, a warning, if you like, about where there's going to be greatest need. But this year, we've buttressed that warning by calling out what we call system failure. In other words, we're not just saying there are more poor or more vulnerable than there were before. We said that last year when uh, partly as a result of COVID, there was a 40% increase between 2019 and 2020 in the number of people in humanitarian need. This year, there's been another increase. But we're saying that there's more going on than simply more poor or more vulnerable. Uh, what's going on is system failure. And what do we mean by system failure? We mean four things. We mean nations, states, failing in their responsibilities towards their own citizens, not just sins of omission, in other words, states being unable to provide for their people, but sins of commission, in other words, states bombing their own people. So that's the first level of system failure. Secondly, we say there's diplomatic failure. 2021 was a record year for the low number of peace deals that were signed in the course of the year. That's a failure of diplomacy. And, and of course, it's war that leads to refugee flows. Thirdly, legal failure. This was a year when war crimes went unpunished on a huge scale. And we call that the age of impunity, or I call that the age of impunity. And the fourth level is operational failure, which is the humanitarian sector not being able to keep up with the increased need. We're, we're bigger and better than ever before. But there's a bigger gap between the needs of the people we're trying to serve and the, the capacity of the humanitarian sector to keep up. And that system failure, I think, speaks to a bigger agenda than simply the old trope that the poor will always be with us. That there's something more important going on that is particular to this time. There are some parallels with the Cold War. There are some parallels with the pre-1945 situation. But this is a dangerous moment when the, all of the trends are pointing towards more need 
and more unmet need. And we all know that when needs are unmet, there isn't just more suffering, there's also more instability that comes in its wake. And that's the prospect under a business as usual scenario. Business as usual does not mean steady state. Business as usual means things getting worse. And for all sorts of reasons, we can't afford that. You, you've said the system failure is not self-correcting. So what are some of the things that you have put forward as solutions to this? Well, we grouped our recommendations in two key areas. One set of areas, one bucket, is within the humanitarian sector. And the second bucket is outside the humanitarian sector. Let me just take them in order. Within the humanitarian uh, sector, at the moment, about 25% of total funding goes to fragile and conflict states, but 50% of the extreme poor live in those states. So we need to change the proportions. We need to amp up the focus on fragile and conflict states, even though it's hard to do business there. Uh, vaccine inequity to do with COVID, obviously a short-term uh, issue. But if I tell you that in sub-Saharan Africa, less than 10% of the population are, are vaccinated in the Democratic Republic of Congo, it's less than 1%, you can see what vaccine inequity means in practice. And Omicron shows that we're all taking a risk in failing to confront the implications of vaccine inequity. The old cliche that no one's safe unless everyone is safe is a cliche because it turns out to be true. There are a range of other changes that I think are important within the humanitarian sector. But in contrast to previous uh, emergency watch list reports, we've not shied away from calling out the wider political situation of which we are not agenda setters, but we are agenda takers. And in that wider context, we think there are some really important ideas that need to be on the agenda. Let, let me run through uh, some of them. First of all, the UN Security Council was set up to promote peace, regional peace and security. Its divisions have now become an impediment to regional peace and security, including in cases of mass atrocities. And we've therefore drawn attention to a French proposal. France is one of the five permanent members of the Security Council. We've drawn attention to the French proposal that in cases of mass atrocity, the veto should be abandoned. We think that if you look at not just the, the veto itself, but the threat of the veto and the way it strangles diplomacy, we have a very serious problem. If the apex of the international system is effectively neutered in increasing numbers of cases, which has happened in the Syria case, it's happened in the Yemen case, it's happened in the Ethiopia case, it's happened in a series of cases. And so we've said that in the limited number of cases, those where there are mass atrocities, and you can have an independent panel to adjudicate on that, then veto should be abandoned. Now, Russia's against it, China's against it, America's against the proposal. And so um, we don't pretend that the proposal is a silver bullet, but the fact that it's still the case that the majority of the permanent members of the UN Security Council insist that they will keep their veto even in cases of mass atrocity shows you the political gridlock that exists. Yeah, it, it doesn't make sense because you're not taking away their veto for everything. You're taking it for very, very specific, narrow mass atrocities. That should be something everybody agrees on. Maybe China might have a problem. But you see, this brings out the, the wider point. We've show in our report what are the drivers of this 245 million people in humanitarian need. And without getting completely diverted from the solutions, we identify three, the internationalization of civil wars. In other words, foreign powers meddling more in greater and greater numbers in civil wars, including up to 12 different countries involved in various ways in the Syri Syrian civil war. We secondly 
uh, draw attention to the fact that sovereignty is being used as a shield uh, against accountability for violation of human rights. So there's a, a retreat from universal rights that were promised in the UN Charter. And thirdly, we also point to the changes and especially the fragmentation of geopolitics that is leading to some of the system failure that we have diagnosed. So in the wake of those of that analysis of the drivers of this humanitarian need, we think you do need to take on this veto in the case of mass atrocities. We say that you need to have a special regime for dealing with war crimes. Uh, there is provision in international law for something called universal jurisdiction to be used to take on war criminals. It's been recently used in a partnership between civil society and the German government. We say that there should be more of that. We speak to a range of other more geopolitical issues. We, for example, say that the strangulation of aid, the denial of aid, which is itself a war crime, that needs to be policed in a way where those whose job it is to police it are, are able to speak out. At the moment, one of the tragedies of the current situation is both for NGOs and for UN officials, they don't dare speak out. So we recommend there should be an independent agency that's monitoring the protection and the provision of access to humanitarian aid, which is a right in international law, and which is being honored not in the observance, but in the breach. So we make a range of recommendations in the political sphere or the geopolitical sphere, not the partisan political sphere, but in the geopolitical sphere, that we think would make a dent on what we see as this rising tide of humanitarian need built on a declining adherence to international statute and international law. You call for urgently helping to address the global vaccine disparity by sharing 500 million excess COVID-19 vaccine doses to reach 40% global vaccine coverage. You've referred to this situation that we're in right now as vaccine apartheid. Well, um, actually, I haven't. Other people have. Other people. Okay, well, it's good to clarify that. I, I haven't used that phrase, but the... Um there's undoubtedly grotesque vaccine inequity. Um, yeah. Now, I think that the really important point to remember is that there are three parts to this equation. One is redistribution of vaccines, because as you rightly say, there are excess vaccines in the richer parts of the world. Notwithstanding the need for boosters, there, is, there are excess vaccines. Secondly, there's a need for production of vaccines in the poorer parts of the world. Now, actually, vaccine production is less of a problem than it was six months ago, because the, the wheels are turning. More or less 1.5 billion doses a month were being produced in uh, December. But there's a third element to this without which the first two are meaningless. And that is, alongside redistribution and production of vaccines, you need distribution of vaccines in poor parts of the world. There's no point in shipping vaccines to national capitals or to national airports if you're not able to get them out of the airport and into the towns and villages of the countries. And that infrastructure doesn't properly exist. It involves cold chains, it involves training of staff. It can cost three, four, five times as much to distribute a vaccine as to actually produce it. And we shouldn't think that's just bureaucracy. That's paying nurses to do injections in the middle of nowhere. And that's what's going to be important. It is vital that we take this seriously. We reckon that if you want to hit the 40% the target in the fragile and conflict states of the IRC's emergency watch list, you're talking about 300 million doses. And that's uh, doable but it won't be done unless there is a real global effort on this. And to be fair to the US administration, they've got some quite positive positions on this. However, what they haven't yet found is a mechanism for rallying international attention and commitment to get this put into practice. So the Biden administration has raised the flag for about 1.2 billion 
doses. It's delivered so far about 300 million to COVAX. It needs to go further, but it then needs a delivery mechanism to get out into the far further reaches of the world, where frankly, we're, we're not yet at the starting gate. And if we don't do that, the result is things like Omicron pop up. Well, I think that's right, really. One's got to be careful on this. But I think you're right that essentially, if we did have a global vaccinated population, the chances of an Omicron-style blow-up would be much lower. Now, it looks like Omicron started in South Africa. The South Africans were, in, were really quick on the uptake and did the genomic sequencing very fast. But undoubtedly, the absence of uh, vaccines for large sections, especially of sub-Saharan Africa, but not only, is very serious indeed. What about countries like Yemen? Um, you know, you have Yemen is third on the list. Yemen is experiencing so many crises at the same time. How do you look at a country like that? And, and, you know, what are some of the ways you're calling for the international community to address the problems there? Well, Yemen, I'm afraid, shows the need both for changes in the humanitarian aid system, but also in the wider geopolitics. Yemen is a victim of the threat of the veto in the UN Security Council. The UN Security Council, you don't really say this in America, is in Bork. Do you know what that means? In in the UK, if you're in Bork, you're, you're sort of at the end of the billiards yeah. table and unable to, to, to get anywhere. So the, the UN Security Council has been dormant on, on Yemen for too uh, long. Uh, there is a UN Special Envoy, but the regional and global politics trap him. The denial of aid by both sides, which is a war crime by both sides, is real. The bombing of civilians has been real without accountability. But the humanitarian tourniquet that has been applied is very, very severe. I mean, we've got about 300 staff now, Yemenis working across Yemen. But it's very, very difficult because the basic right to humanitarian aid is being denied as well. Now, all of this comes on the back of a failure of diplomacy. And what's happening during this failure of diplomacy is that the situation on the ground is becoming more complicated. You've got more conflict actors. You've got more separatist groups. You've got more uh, global jihadist potential there. And so the job of fashioning a political settlement is getting more and more difficult. The, the Biden administration took an important step at the beginning of its administration, nearly a year ago now, in saying that it would no longer support the Saudi-led coalition in its offensive maneuvers. But it hasn't been able to follow that up. And I'm afraid the situation has worsened in the last year on the ground in Yemen rather than got better. The Yemeni people are the first victims of that, but it's a fuel for regional instability. And that is very, very dangerous at this time. Let's talk about Afghanistan for a minute. Afghanistan tops the list for a good reason. Um, what happens next in Afghanistan? Um, you have women and girls issues. You have all kinds of humanitarian issues when it comes to the Taliban now being in charge. So how do you approach Afghanistan in this current iteration? Well, let me try and say something in, in as inoffensive a way as possible, but something which is quite extraordinary. The biggest problem for the Afghan people today is not the policies or the decisions of its own government. I'm not going to get into how the current government of Afghanistan got there. That's not my business. But there are 1,700, 1,700 Afghan staff who work for the International Rescue Committee across Afghanistan in nine provinces. The Taliban government is not stopping them doing their business. In fact, they're encouraging them to do their business, locally and nationally. What is hobbling the aid effort 
And what is doing terrible damage to the Afghan people is the global economic isolation policy that's being imposed on that country. The end of the war economy was always going to happen with the end of the war. But the end of financial support for the administration of government in the country, the end of payments for teachers and doctors and nurses to have their salaries paid, the freezing of assets that are Afghan assets, the fear of sanctions that has led to the liquidity crisis in the dealings of foreign banks with Afghan banks, the depreciation of the currency, those are the clear and present dangers that face the Afghan people. And you don't have to take my word for it. The UN says that 9 million Afghans, including 1 million Afghan children, are at the international standard level 4 for food insecurity, and level 5 is famine. 23 million people risk getting to that level in a population of 38 million. And so what's going to happen to Afghanistan is that there's a, there's a genuine fork in the road. I don't like using that cliche, but in this case, it's true. If there isn't a release of the economic stranglehold, people are going to die. I mean, it's as simple as that. If there is, then they're going to live, and then there are all sorts of other more conventional problems for that country to try and come to terms with. It's got a massive, it was one of the world's poorest countries even before the Taliban took over. It, there are big security issues because Islamic State are present there. There are big migration issues to Pakistan and to Iran. But those issues pale alongside the fact that a million kids are going to starve if there isn't economic support. Because frankly, the economic rug has been pulled from under the country. And the subsistence agriculture on which rural populations depend has been decimated by a drought which has its roots probably, certainly its exacerbated roots, in some of the climate crisis, which, of all its sins, Afghanistan did not create this, the, the climate crisis. And so I think that especially American policymakers face a really critical set of choices. I mean, they've been critical choices for the last three months, but they're even more critical now because I fear that, they, that the argument is being put from outside government, that they can't afford to allow payments to go to the Taliban. But we're not talking about payments to the Taliban. We're talking about payments to Afghan nurses. We're talking about sanctions on banks dealing with Afghan banks. We're talking about assets that don't belong to the international system. They belong to Afghanistan. And assets that could be used to pay for food and fuel and medicine. And what I would say to those who are debating this is that the question is not whether the Taliban get the quote-unquote credit for avoiding starvation. It's whether or not the West gets the blame for starvation happening. And so the stakes couldn't be higher. And I really appeal to people, not just on humanitarian grounds, but frankly on global geopolitical grounds, there's no gain from the current policy. It's a lose-lose, this policy that's currently being pursued. And some of the humanitarian challenges have been recognized in the loosening of some of the sanctions. There are exemptions now for various important humanitarian work. But that just makes the point that we need, we're in an extraordinary situation that needs extraordinary measures now. Yeah, and the political situation in the United States surrounding Afghanistan can't make this any easier. Yeah, but my impression, look, you're an American, I just live here. 
<laughs> My impression is that Americans just don't want to hear the word Afghanistan again. Well, that's right. Is that we want to, we wanted to sweep it under the rug and there's nobody, you know, so we went through this traumatic, we went through the, this traumatic withdrawal. Um, it didn't go well by all accounts. And, you know, Americans don't want to hear about Afghanistan anymore because we were dealing with it for the last 20 years. But so you've got that political problem. And then the other political problem is, is you don't have anybody in Congress right now, like a John McCain, who would say, you know, this is the right thing to do. We need to go. And you're not paying the Taliban. You're paying nurses and doctors. There are plenty of people who can say the right thing. But in any case, since if we agree that America doesn't want to hear about Afghanistan, then the sooner it starts allowing Afghans to feed themselves, the better. Because I guarantee you, you're going to be hearing about it if, unless there's a significant change of course soon. So this is really not just an American problem. It's a global problem. Where do our allies stand on this? Well, I think that they're looking to you, to be honest. This is a time of global democratic recession. You've talked about this on your podcast before. You know about yeah. that. This is a time, you know, Anne Applebaum's piece in The Atlantic, the, the bad guys are winning. Right. So... Uh, this is a time in which liberal democracy is on the back foot, uh, in which de democracy is becoming less liberal, and liberal democracy is on the wrong is on the wrong end of a beating. The allies around the world, and there are allies, want America to be a steady hand. They don't want an unpredictable America. They want a more predictable America, and they want an America that's ready to lead, not to be the world's policeman, not to do all of the work itself. There's going to be responsibility. Uh, sharing, but we're all going to share the blame of the Afghan crisis. And the bigger point is that we are one of those inflection points. There was an inflection point after 1945. There was an inflection point after 1990 and the fall of the Berlin Wall. We're at another inflection point now. And I, people say you can't remake the international system. And my point in response to that is, well, you're going to end up remaking the pre-international system. And that was a bleeding disaster. So we better remake the international system for an age, let's not forget, where the world is more interdependent, not less. So there's no excuse because everyone talks understandably about the Thucydides trap. I mean, Graham Allison got a lot of coverage and interest in his book. But as his colleague Joe Nye always points out, don't forget the Kindleberger trap. Kindleberger wrote about the interwar period when the failure of the rising power to take its share of provision of global public goods contributed to the second explosion of the uh, 20th century, the, the, the Second World War. We've got a rising power in the world today, China. It needs to be party with America and with the European Union and with other powers to delivering on the global public goods on which we all depend. Global public goods in respect of health security, global public goods in respect of climate security, global public goods in respect of nuclear security global public goods that hold of, of economic security, that hold the world together, and global public goods in respect of the support of refugees and diplomacy. That is the appeal that underpins this watch list uh, today. And it's an appeal, I hope people will go and read the watch list, it's at rescue.org is our website. It's a serious piece of work, 66 different data points that have gone into showing how these 20 countries are in greatest humanitarian need. And they are 20 countries that are the tip of a rather dangerous iceberg. And we'd better understand that sooner rather than later. If there's one thing we always say on this podcast is that read everything that Joe Nye and Graham Allison ever write. <laughs> <laughs> um, I will make sure that Joe listens to this podcast as well. 
Finally, David, I wanted to talk briefly about uh, climate change because this is another tremendous problem that affects everything you've put forward here. What's your take here and what do we need to do in the short term? Well, I think you know, uh, as well as I do, that the Glasgow conference was a, a glass quarter full. Yeah. The requirement that we get on track to halve the 50 billion tons of carbon that are in the atmosphere every year to get it down uh, in half by 2030 and then get to net zero by 2050, we're off track. And the measures that were agreed in uh, Glasgow are 20% at best, 25% of the way there. So the drive for decarbonization will become more steep the longer we postpone it and less effective the longer we postpone it. And so the decarbonization drive is absolutely critical. Now, that will take three or four trillion dollars a year, people say, the International Energy Authority says. But there's private finance as well as public finance to go into that. In the meantime, those who contributed least to the climate crisis are most exposed to the climate crisis and least able to defend themselves against the climate crisis. So we need adaptation as well as mitigation if we are to help people live through this very painful transition. Now, for the industrialized world, I actually think that the drive for decarbonization is a source of jobs and potentially a source of resources to tackle inequality rather than exacerbate it. The climate crisis feeds off inequality. Actually, the drive to decarbonize could be a source of uh, resource to tackle inequality. But that's a, that's a broader argument. But obviously, the, the twin horsemen of the apocalypse here are, one, the climate crisis, two, the inequality crisis. And I think we've got to try and tackle them together. David, this has been fascinating. And I do hope everybody listening will go to the IRC's website to read this excellent report. It has so much in it that we need to study and learn from and, and really act on. So, David, thank you for helping us get to the truth of the matter about this global situation. Thank you very much, Andrew. Good to talk to you. If you enjoyed this podcast, check out our larger suite of CSIS podcasts from Into Africa, The Asia Chessboard, China Power, AIDS 2020, The Trade Guys, Smart Women, Smart Power, and more. You can listen to them all on major streaming platforms like iTunes and Spotify. Visit csis.org slash podcasts to see our full catalog 